You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns, right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. It is September 21st, 2015, and we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Hello, everybody. That's her, Burns, and we're broadcasting on Future Theater Live from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Sulbury Village, Pennsylvania, on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio, our guests tonight. Producer, producer, producer. I will get to the producer. He gets to me, he gets to me. Go ahead, Nancy. Our guests tonight are are Frank Faschino, who wrote the books Shoot Him Down and uh, The Braxton County Monster, and Alfred Lemberg. And our producer is the wonderful Jackal, Angel Espino. Say hello, Jackal. Hello, Jackal. Hello, Bill Nancy. How are you tonight? And so I hear last week when we were off for the beginning of the Jewish holidays, you celebrated by shattering your thumb. Well, no. I want to say shattering, but I have a hairline fracture on my left thumb, and I've been in pain for the last two weeks. It's been horrible. Oh, How did so you get the pain. fracture? How did you get that fracture? It's a rather embarrassing thing, Bill. Uh, let's just say I had a slip and fall moment, and uh, my finger bent backwards, and that's oh. not how it's supposed to bend. And uh, yeah, Yikes. I fractured right in the bottom base of the thumb. Like, I had an x-ray done to it, and they told me, yeah, you can get a cast on it. It's going to self-heal in about eight, nine weeks. Wait, no surgery? No, no surgery. Just let it, you know, let it heal. Self-healing. So they, they wanted to put it. They wanted to put a cast on me, and I was like, nah, because that stuff itches too much. So I was like, yeah, I'll go cast-free. You know, so I'm kind of like just dealing with the pain. Well, there might be a blow-up cast you can get from the pharmacy that's sort of like a hand cast, and you just kind of blow it up, and it gets really tight. I had you that. Yeah, I got one of those. I got. I got one of those wrapped around, like something like that, similar, or, you know, wrapped around it, uh, which kind of protects it and reminds me that it's messed up, so I don't bang it against something. So right. Yeah, right. you should have your whole but body encased to remind yourself that you're messed up. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No Listen, <laughs> there. Uh, before before we start, I I feel obligated since everybody on Belgab today has been on tenter hooks uh, because Belgab.com is a forum that Art Bell, who follows our show, and who forum. is the reason that you're probably listening in the first place because Correct. you're waiting yes. for his show. Well, yep. he had big, big news for us today. And the big news kind of, for non-radio people, kind of, they said, eh. And, and I wanted to just tell you the news. And maybe you uh, can explain it a little bit, Angel, if you understand what the, what the deal means. Okay, and it's this. Uh, there's a thing called the XD satellite xds satellite and the satellite is going to carry the show for 4000 stations or something like that see i'm already getting confused this is a really big deal in the radio world but do you angel have any idea what this means uh you're talking about the xds feed that they're going to start running the show with uh you know, it's just another outlet for for the show to get out there. I mean, Art's taken every outlet that he can, but this is the home of the show. You know, no matter what, it's dark matter digital. But it's cool. You know, it, it'll be another form to broadcast the show. You know, to parts of the world that maybe don't get it now for some reason. Well, I also think it involves many, many, many terrestrial stations because I think yep. in their case for syndication, it's no, never mind. 
they just sort of turn a dial and go to whatever satellite they want. Yeah, I don't know. If they're picking up the same stream like that Art's using. Maybe they have, they have this, a second stream or something. No, I bet not. I'm no, not, I sure. bet it, I'm not no, sure. No, I bet it's the same one. I bet that's Could well. Be. Who knows? Yeah. Well, I listen every no night. Clue. And, yeah, I listen every night, and I can tell you that the show has been on for two months and has just been smooth as silk. Um, yes, it has. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's actually you know it's funny because I was listening to a couple of the episodes and and. Even the way Art is doing the show, like his his on air persona, which is always Art Bell, but he's having more fun with this show than even when he was on satellite radio. It seems like it. I remember really always kind of yeah. I, I did a lot of cringing back in the day when something would seemingly make him mad, or he'd throw his yeah. back out, and he would, and and we, you know, even the listeners were kind of on tenterhooks. But now, no, it seems like uh, it seems like a much younger Art Bell, quite frankly, and this. Right? Yeah, yeah. Does, yeah. So anyway, so and for Bill, this uh, middle of September we are now. Uh, right, the right. official pub date for the Mickey Rooney book is October something. Right. Uh, it's October twentieth, mm-hmm. and books come back from the factory uh, the day after tomorrow, September twenty third, which is the first day of autumn, the first official day of autumn. The equinox is on the twenty third, and books are due back from the factory on that day, and uh, they get shipped out. To the stores. Nice. Okay. And the day after tomorrow. Day after tomorrow, yeah. Just and, like the movie. Right. And there's Inspired all sorts Art of... Inspired by Art Bell's book, going back to Art Bell. Right. Day after tomorrow, yeah, but the day after tomorrow <laughs> came after the day after Roswell. Uh-huh. Day after Roswell. Two different things, though. Two completely Oh, no, no, things. but the day after Roswell was the way that that phrase got put into the common currency, day after Roswell, in I, the I, I, field. And the funny thing is, I, I remember the no. I remember I remember the exact moment when the mm-hmm. production company Rosewood Woods Neil Russell, and it was his idea. I mean, that mm-hmm. was his title, and uh, we were basically sitting in his office, and we knew we had we had the proposal, and there was a whole back and forth with the proposal. Uh, they wanted me to put Corso as a member of MJ12, which Corso adamantly rejected. And then, um, so we're sitting around, and we and the proposal needed a title, and we're thinking, well, we should have Roswell in the title. What's it going to be? And then Neil basically piped up with the day after Roswell, and the publisher loved the title, and that's mm-hmm. again what helped sell the book and move it forward at Simon and Schuster. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's a great title. Yeah. A book, by the way, would still. Almost twenty years later, is still in royalties. Well, you know what I suggest nice. we do. Um, since, uh, since we come to the listeners two hours before Art Bell's show comes on, uh, right. we cover the same territories pretty, pretty much. Uh, well, I would somewhat. say future theater maybe will sometimes do other stuff, but so does Art Bell. I, I think we're covering basically the same territories, and a, a thing I think we should therefore address is mm-hmm. in uh, Art Bell's show number blankety-blank, when... Um, Stanton Freeman was on debating with a guy, and I'm trying to remember which one. Ta-da! I should know this off the top of my head. I'll find it in a minute. <laughs> um, it might have been the Flat Earth guy. I don't remember. But Could Stanton, I think, Stanton was I, I think on. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Oh, I hope not. I, I, I think I'm blocking it. But I actually, you know, I actually got a, a little hate on myself on Twitter because I, I, you know, said I didn't believe in the Flat Earth that night. Oh, really? Twitter. 
Yeah. So wow. Some folks actually think the flat Earth is real. I'm sorry. That's yeah. Uh, no. Okay. Amazing so Stan to me, no, Okay. So Stanton was not debating the flat Earth guy. He was debating instead the twelfth show on the fourth of August. Uh, Jay Widener. He was well, debating Jay one. Widener. Oh. Totally different. And then the Flat Earth Show, if you're interested and you're a time traveler, which is a subscriber, mm -hmm. you could see the Flat Earth Show next or listen to it next after that. But Jay Widener. So Stanton's there show. and Stanton goes off on a tangent of really laying into where he thinks the Corso story completely falls apart. And so I'd mm -hmm. love to have him on with Bill and so we could just kind of go at this stuff. And you know, there's there are boxes in the attic that can support what Bill will say to debate with Stanton. Mm, you know, so I think that would I think that would be worthwhile to. That would be, yeah. Yeah, that won't care. I know Stan's. I know one of Stan's big arguments. I mean, there were uh, there were many of them, but mm -hmm. one of Stan's big arguments was that Corso had signed an affidavit saying that he was a member of the National Security Council, which he was right, not. Right, 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 right. And I know that was one of Stan's big bugaboos. In other words, we have Corso on record as being a liar, as perjuring right. himself in a legal document. And How do you trust anything else as to that? Right. Well, yep. since, I, since I know the whole story, and since I know why he did it and, and, and what the purpose was, and, I, you know, I'm still upset about Peter Gersten feeding him that affidavit nobody asked me mm -hmm. because um in the book well, should we have peter on the show we've never had him on does he still give interviews i have no idea i haven't spoken to peter I think in we years should, uh, did you part friends um the last time i spoke to peter was right after the whole affidavit thing blew up which would have been almost 20 years ago it was in 1998 it was and, the last time we spoke mm -hmm. what do you mean by blew up well, after this was Corso was months away from death and um, he'd signed this affidavit. He was going to Roswell and at Roswell, he was going to be challenged by a number of people, including Stan, about some of the facts in the book. And uh, he had signed this affidavit and the knives were out. And so folks had asked me, did you see this affidavit? And I read it and I said, it's not true. I said, Corso well, either... Corso didn't know what he was signing or, and then Peter Gerson came back and said, I didn't need to ask you what Corso was signing. You're, you're not his manager. Um, I asked him again, mm -hmm. was he really serious? Was he, did he want to retract it and have me change the affidavit? And he said, no. And, and the point was at this point at the end of his life, and it was the end of his life. Well, that's Corso, what I wanted to ask. When, when, when was all this going on? This was going on in spring 1998, and it was right at the point when Corso's lawsuit against Rosewood Woods Productions and myself had fallen apart, fell apart for a couple of reasons, uh, fell apart on a technicality, actually a legal technicality. It was never judged on the merits. It was dismissed um well, the suit against me was dismissed straight out because Corso and I were never in a business relationship, so there could be no breach of contract since um, we were never in contract in the first place. So that fell apart immediately. But it, it, the suit, because they claimed 
that the amount in controversy was over $75,000. I hope Lou Shuhan is, miss- is, is listening, was over $75,000, and there was a diversity of citizenship. Corso was in Cal- uh, Florida. We were in California, and uh, service was not really affected. But because of the diversity of citizenship and the amount in controversy, the suit was immediately picked up uh, in federal court. And the federal court dismissed the lawsuit uh, on a whole basis of technical reasons, not the least of which was that the contract between Corso and the Motion Picture Company stipulated that for all intents and purposes, the uh, state of jurisdiction was the state of California, County of Los Angeles. And since Corso would find the lawsuit in Florida, that uh, the right, but the, but this was. Out. This was before the affidavit, all this had happened before? This was happening right before the affidavit, and we were all contemplating, I wasn't, but but Rosewood Woods was countersuing Corso, and that was up in the air, and Corso was furious, because what had happened was this. A few months after, the book came out in July 1997, and uh, you and I were uh, in Roswell for the launch of the book, and that was the night that Corso and Linda Moulton Howe were on the Art Bell show on Coast to Coast. And the book went to the bestseller list literally the, uh, the following week. That was how powerful that show was. <clears throat> By the end of the summer, Corso... Thank you, indeed, Art. Um, uh, by the end of the summer, Corso was in, uh, 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 was filing a law, uh, had gone back on the Art Bell show with um, uh, um, John, I forget his name. Alexander. John Alexander, right. He'd gone out with John Alexander, and he was back on the Art Bell show. What I didn't know, but found out shortly thereafter, was that at this point, his son... Corso Jr. had kind of, quote-unquote, taken over his, quote-unquote, management, even though Corso's rights had already been effectively purchased by the motion picture company because the sale and publication of the book The Day After Roswell was the trigger for converting the option on Corso's life story rights to the sale of Corso's life story rights. And at that point, Rosewood Woods was talking to a number of other motion picture companies, not the least of which was Tom Cruise's company. So they were in um, a very brief set of negotiations. And Corso was angry at the motion picture company, angry at me, and represented to John Alexander and represented to anybody else who John was talking to turned out to be Steven Seagal that Corso owned his own rights in and to the book which was not true. The rights were owned by Rosewood Woods Productions. Corso had sued we can go into that someday with Stan if you want but he sued on the basis of he felt that his Simon & Schuster had given us a contract. I wrote a proposal immediately after the book came out for Corso's work on the Senate Judiciary Committee as the chairman of the Internal Government Security Committee. It was a subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee, and Corso was working for Senator Richard Russell. Those of you who were alive back then will remember that Senator Richard Russell was on the Warren Commission. And Russell had asked... 
Russell had asked Corso to investigate the Warren Commission because there were a number of people on the Warren Commission, not the least of whom was Jerry Ford, ultimately President Ford, who believed that the lone gunman theory was a, was a false theory and that there was a conspiracy to assassinate JFK. That's what Corso wow. was investigating for the United States Senate. And so I took that material, wrote a proposal called The Day After Dallas, and sold that to Simon & Schuster as the Corso sequel book. Well, Corso felt, this is what he argued, that because the contract for the option and purchase of his life story rights specifically mentioned Corso's career in the army. And there was a very ambiguous phrase which said, and sequels there too, that this second book was not covered by the contract and Corso was free to do anything he wanted because he was out from under the contract. So he represented his own rights to John Alexander uh, and thence to Steven Seagal. So I got this phone call after, our, uh, after Phil was on the Art Bell show the second time with John that, uh, from Steven Seagal's lawyer. I think his name was Craig Emanuel, I'm not sure. And he called me and I got a call from Simon & Schuster. It was almost simultaneous, basically saying, well, uh, now that Corso's rights have been purchased for a movie, what do we do? And I said, whoa, wait a minute. And I explained to the rights person at SNS that Corso's rights had not been purchased for a movie by anybody other than Rosewood Woods. Another flaming call came in from this from Craig Emanuel and saying, What do you mean? What do you mean? We showed him the original contract saying we own the rights. Sorry, but the rights are gone. Well, Corso was so furious that he filed a lawsuit against Rosewood Woods and me. And the lawsuit was dismissed. Um, it, it wasn't even remanded back to state court. It was just flat out dismissed on that technicality. And Corso was so mad. And, and he'd begun to decline physically because I saw him during depositions at Neil's lawyer's office, Marty Singer's office. And so Corso had begun to decline it, and you knew it, you could see it. He was not sharp, he was very weak, and he decided that he was going to represent his own book at the Roswell anniversary in 1998. And it was well, he was also being influenced by all kinds of people. Oh, it was, um, it was a disaster. I mean, he was angry, everybody. I mean, at this point... Paula Harris was importuning him. Paula Harris, folks should know, took the day after Roswell because Corso represented that he owned the book. And I'm giving her a pass on this, by the way. Um, she took the book and she took it to these two Bayati brothers, uh, the, uh, the Bayatas, uh, to publish the book in Italian. And Corso announced it was coming out in Italian, and then he'd sold the book. And I went screaming to the right, the Foreign Rights Department at Simon & Schuster, and they sent her a flaming letter, and that was the end of that deal. Then Corso, still in a fury, handed all of his manuscripts, the stuff that he had given to me back in 1995. He gave copies to Paula Harris and to... Um, Linda Moulton Howe, and they walked off with them. And the, the, the kid, 
Phil Jr. was furious. He pulled him back from Linda. But then Paula Harris had sold them to somebody else for a whole other book. That was a disaster. Uh, that manuscript is now owned by, uh, what's-his-face, John Rayo. And well, ironically enough. Minds, ironically enough. Which I wrote, I, by the way. Okay. So, so you just described an amazing bit of little publishing stuff. And ironically enough, our guest tonight, Frank Faschino, has his similar tales of woe. And I wanted to say to anybody listening who feels they want to do some good UFO research, my goodness, learning how to deal with uh, what happens to your life if lightning strikes, um, if you've got a good story. And Frank Faschino has an unbelievable story. And he basically had to kind of go to a lot of trouble to get out of his first publishing deal. Uh, He got into it. Uh, naively, as many of us do, or you take people at their word, and or uh, deals just fall apart all the time. It pe- deals are made of people, and people are always very changeable. Um, and so, I just wanted to say that I'm sure that Frank and Al, listening, could tell us a story that would just take the paint off the story you just told about, you know, uh, not only that, not only publishing. Every time you, and when you hear Frank's story, you'll see why. Or the day after Roswell, I remember fielding some of the calls that were coming in when it was on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, when it was on the list, we'd be getting calls from all kinds of people who were just pitching stories on the run and wanted meetings and stuff. And um, and Frank has this compact, perfect story. It's basically what happened in 1952 when we all hear something happened. The White House was buzzed and all this stuff. Frank's got the story beginning, middle, and end. And TV people come to call and they go a certain way. They might even do the whole thing, but they do it poorly. And people who are, and and this is the other thing, people who are lifetime friends sometimes will break up um, over you know, what goes on with the TV stuff and all that. So I point all this out. It's it's a big part of UFO research, and that is trying to get your story out. But it's oh, a rough... One of, the, one of the toughest parts, actually, of UFO research. Well, well mm-hmm. it's true, but then look what happened to Frank when, I forget the name of the production company, for one of the series on history, and I was begging those guys not to go with that production company. They so trashed the Braxton. That's what I'm saying. They just trashed that story. And then they bring on. Well, look what uh, happened to you with Rogan. You were on the Joe Rogan show. And Bill has always been. That flip flopper, Joe Rogan. Well, here's the thing. Luckily, uh, Bill and I have never seen this, but it was pretty bad. And Bill was painted as the loony. And Stephen Greer was painted as the sane guy. And (laughs) and you'd have to see the Joe Rogan show to watch this because uh, Bill remembers all the taping. So Bill knows what got cut out. So Bill might say something like, uh, he might, you know, Rogan might have said, does this stuff ever make you crazy? And Bill might have said, crazy, sometimes. 
And then that would be used as Bill's big soundbite. Just that. You know what's crazy about Joe Rogan, though, Nancy and Bill? I don't think that like he was put up to say this stuff or act like that with Bill. I think that's just the way he does things. And then later on, he might regret doing certain things, you know, a certain way, and he like changes. That's why I call yeah, him but he does. The way. But doesn't he kind of okay? And he also uh, was friendly with, and then turned on a guy I like a exactly. lot. Exactly. That's what he does. That's what he does. I'm sure one day he's going to kiss Bill's ass, and he's going to want to be all buddy buddy with him. And here's the thing about Joe Rogan. I, you know, he he went off about the moon landing, going off on how it was a hoax, saying that there's wait, no wait, way we could have got thinks, to the moon. Wait, 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 he thinks it's a hoax? He thought it was a hoax, right? He went mm-hmm. on this huge tirade. You can look it up on Google or YouTube. Uh, put Joe Rogan uh, doesn't believe the moon landing or, it's a, or the, what is right. a, it was a hoax. And you'll find the, the video out there, and he talks about it at length about how he thinks it's a hoax. And then if you look for a, a video he did a few months back with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the scientist, mm-hmm. he talks about how he believes now that we actually went to the moon and that he was proven mm-hmm. uh, beyond a doubt that we actually went to the moon and how silly mm-hmm. he was for not believing that we went to the moon. And, and basically it's just somebody told him, no, man, look, you're an idiot. You didn't see things right. This is the actual proof. And then he was like, oh, okay. So he's a flip-flopper. He's easy to way one way or the other and well or a liar is another way of putting it that's he another was, yeah that's another way you know. yeah completely I, i'm not impressed by you know joe rogan and what he did to bill was completely low class completely low yeah class. i mean the thing is bill's got a list of publications as long as your arm and a bunch of degrees so he's really yes, the real indeed. thing i mean if you want true crime if you want hollywood memorabilia bill's your man and so, and those are solid fields where nobody says, oh, so the UFO stuff is just a, a side project, if you will. Right. But, but Stephen Greer is 100% the Stephen Greer product. How yeah, anybody could... joke, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on how you feel about him. But number one, all roads lead to the bank, the Stephen Greer bank. Right. Which is and the Stephen loaded. Greer company. Mm-hmm. And there are a whole bunch of people like that in the field. And, and by the way, um, I, when I forgot to, you know, I was uh, working with Al Lemberg. He's a good friend of mine. And I, we were working to set up the show tonight. And I forgot to ask him, but I did want to just kind of throw it out here. Um, maybe he'll want to talk about it a little bit because he's much more knowledgeable. Um, but we, ever since... Um, Emma Woods, that's all I'll say, Emma Woods. Uh, okay. The Emma Woods-David Jacobs controversy, mm-hmm. okay? And I don't, and it's too late in the half hour to get into it. But I feel strongly that as Dave Jacobs begins to make his PR run, because he's got a new book out, the Emma Woods story should be looked at too. Uh, yep. uh, yeah, okay, so that's, I'm glad we all agree. Because I, I think that's the function of our show, and mm-hmm. I think, it's, and I feel like it's becoming less and less an important function because when I look on the internet at the edifices, the monuments that are set up for these people who are scammers, it's imp- almost impossible to break through that. Because it's people, amazing, isn't it? It's yeah. so amazing. Yeah. And that always reminds me, let's get Michael Heiser on. That's another person. You have to put me in He's touch. He's awesome. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I, we have to have him on Skywatches before the year's over, oh, but maybe we'll have him on Feature Theater instead this year. Oh, that would be so cool! And <laughs> next, well, and and we even did we even did our homework a little bit. We have next week we have Paul Smith. Uh, Ooh, he's got nice. a new remote viewing book coming out, and we love Paul Smith. I'm telling you, um, with my whole heart and soul, I do believe remote viewing is possible, and I believe Paul Smith can do it and has done it 
and can teach people how to do it. You and, know, it's so uh, funny that he's going to be on next week. I was talking about that with my nephew yesterday. Oh, yeah? Remote viewing. I was, yeah, I was showing him uh, my Blu-ray collection, and I showed him the movie Men Who Stare at Goats. Fantastic ah. movie. Love that movie. And I'm telling him what the movie's about. And he's 18. He's very impressionable. He doesn't know anything about anything, really, about this kind of stuff. Right. And I asked him, do you know what remote viewing is? And he's like, no idea. So I kind of tried to explain to him what it was. Mm-hmm. And then he got this cross-eyed look on his face like, what the hell are you talking about? It completely mm-hmm. lost him, I think, for a minute. After a while, I think he started to understand what I was talking about with remote viewing. And he kind of picked up on it and he was interested in the movie. So that's cool right there. But yeah, highly recommend that movie to everybody. Well, we had uh, we should have him on again too. A fellow named James Channon. He was played by yeah. I believe he was played by by George Clooney. Yep. Mm, was it Clooney Channon. or was it was it Clooney no. or McGregor? No, it was uh, the great uh, Lebowski. What uh, the the big Lebowski? That's Jeff Bridges. Oh, Jeff Bridges. Oh, oh, Jeff Bridges. Right. Yeah. 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 I love Jeff Bridges. The, all you gotta say. All you gotta say is yeah, the dude. And in fact, the dude. The dude. And in fact, Jimmy Channon looks a lot like Jeff Bridges. Yeah, I think he was played by the dude because he's the guy who brought sort of Zen, this way of thinking. And and basically, I don't know how much our military has ever embraced these topics, really. Or, you know, is it all nuts and bolts, nuts and bolts? Or is it really a good hearty helping of esoteric stuff? Because what the heck, it's a weapon. It's, you know, you you just hold your nose. If you talk to uh, Jimmy Channon, the army, in fact, did embrace it. And then if you talk to John Alexander, the army embraced it more than people realize because it's the army, according to Alexander, it's the army that kind of recognized that there really is such a thing called the paranormal that is separate from the material world. So that's one of the things he told us on a radio show maybe two years ago, two, three years ago. Right, right, right. And then if you go all the way, uh, there's a guy named Andy, Andy Bishago, and in fact, Bill did interview him. I have never heard the interview. It's on our guest list. Go to the guest list on Future Theater, um, and so did Art. And Andy Bishago says our government has a black budget of time travel and, whoa, you know, jump rooms to Mars. Wow. Uh, Lou uh-huh. has not heard of the movie Man Who Stared Goats. So wow. He's in for a treat. So- I'm surprised. He's in for a treat. Yeah. He just asked me. Uh, he just asked me on Skype. He's like, uh, "You have a thing for goats? Uh, what the hell are you talking about?" Men who stare at goats, and and uh, it's also probably an excellent book because John Ronson is one of the really. He's a fun writer. He sort of mm-hmm. debunks. He's he's semi debunker. He's not one of us. He does not ultimately believe in anything that we think about in the paranormal fields, but he uses it all the time for his research and his work. But he always acts a little bit like, I'm still one foot still in the normal world, which gives him his cachet. Yes. Uh-huh. So anyway, Street so crap. yeah. So yeah. So I think we're at our halfway point. Um, and yeah, tonight when you hear, as soon as our show's over, hour and a half from now, Art will probably elaborate and explain to the people who don't understand radio how they can help call up right, radio right. stations and so forth and so on. So, Basically, uh, he's going to take over every piece of media that you can yeah. think of. <laughs> One day we're going to launch our own satellite and take over satellite radio too. That's what we're going to do on Dark Matter. Well, I think this is it. I think this is it, guys. I we think can, it's already we can get We can get Elon Musk to launch the Dark Matter digital satellite. Yes. Not a bad idea. Yeah, I like that we'll idea. Do like a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's no, the no, dark no, no. satellite. No, no, no Kickstarter, Nancy. We got to do Indiegogo. Oh, uh, why? 
because they let you keep your dough if you don't make the entire you know money. If Kickstarter, if you don't make every dollar that you set your you goal, give it all back, right? You give it all back. You you don't make anything. So say uh-huh. you're like five bucks short from a hundred thousand dollars. Oh, so in Indiegogo, that you keep it? You keep every penny. Yeah. Well, Indiegogo. someday, Indiegogo. someday we too will make money. Someday. Free plug. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so, so we will Bill? be, I think, uh, right back in a few minutes. Bill's going to take us out. Hi, Bill. Okay, so hey, this Bill. is uh, so stay with us. We'll be back with our guests, Frank Fashino and Albert and Alfred Lemberg, right after this. These messages from our happy sponsors. See you on the other side on the Dark Matter Digital Network, PSN Radio, and we are Future Theater. James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth-oriented discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, CapricornMembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic. Truth is truth. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374 That's 954-973-3374 Or visit keyinformation.com Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. The UFO phenomenon, either we like it or not, is already very much part of our reality. I've been on panels with uh, military people who, you know, claim that they've seen the aliens buzzing our missile silos. They have very large eyes, and, you know, I found their stare extremely difficult to bear. This is Martin Willis, the host of Podcast UFO, and we are here on the Dark Matter Radio Network every Wednesday from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
It is my commitment to bring you an entertaining weekly show that takes a hard look at the UFO phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial? Well, are they interdimensional? Are they time travelers or something we have not even thought of yet? We explore these questions with interesting guests and witnesses from all around the globe. In addition, we bring you weekly UFO news with Open Minds TV, Alejandro Rojas. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your eyes to the sky. Back on Future Theater Live with our guest Frank Fischino, the author of Shoot 'em Down and Alfred Lemberg. And we have, uh, first of all, a horror story to tell you about publishing. But then we're going to get into the substance of the Summer of Saucers, that wonderful year, 1952. Gents, welcome, Alfred. Welcome, Frank. Good to hear your voices again after all these many, many, many moons. And Frank, before, uh, I mean, Alfred, before we even start, your story of the the story of John Ford with John's interview that I did and um, Jerry Samisi's interview will all be in the Brookhaven chapter in the forthcoming UFO Hunters book two, which I will send you. Oh, excellent. Ah, ah, nice. Yeah, that's that's marvelous news. So we have reharvested all that material. Right, and, and um, you know, so we mentioned uh, a John Ford. We'll just mention just hello, Emma Woods, just hello. And then we want to move on to uh, the, the first, very first thing, Al, you were just talking about during the break. Well, we were talking about the, the predatory atmosphere of people that are going out there and really busting their hump doing some solid work. And then they have to contend with a... An uncivilized and and impolite society of uh, of publishers and agents and you know people that that want to essentially cash in on 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 what you have produced, right? But there and, are still good people. Oh yeah, okay. Of course, there are good not people, Florida, Nancy. Nancy. Yeah. But but you know those good people are not bad mouthing the bad people, just like. You know, good cops don't badmouth bad cops and doctors right. and lawyers and, you know, like they all have this pro- pro- a professional courtesy thing going on. But the the the, the point is, is that there's uh, – uh, my own father, for instance, you know, he wrote for uh, 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 Steam and uh, another magazine I can't remember. Steam wasn't bad, actually. But uh, he wrote for magazines that just refused to pay him. You know, just, what, what just, was Steam? What was Steam directed? What kind of audience? Oh, it uh, Steam uh, uh, operated boats and uh, oh, steam engines. It was all about steam and and uh, wow. not steampunk, but it was. Uh, there's a big interest of in course, that. Of I thought, course, I, I of thought that's where he was going with that steampunk for a second. Was, no, no, no. Oh. There was before steampunk. There was steam. Yeah, steam. There was, right. was I was getting steam, excited for no reason. Real then. steam. <laughs> <laughs> Got me all wow. Anyway, he had a just a, a really bad problem with it and then uh, it seems like everybody i've run into has had prob- problems 
with uh, uh, or, or, or one another with uh, the publishers when they try to sell their books. Don Ledger, uh, if uh, you remember who he is, he wrote about the uh, the incident in uh, uh, on the on uh, one of the coasts of Canada. The uh, uh, Right, right, right. Anyway, that's Sage Harbor. Is Sage Harbor? Not Sage. It's Sag. Not Sag Harbor. Shag Harbor. Shag Harbor. That's what it is. Yeah, the Shag Harbor incident. You know where they're the first underwater UFO and the big hoopla on the flap of the Navy. But anyway, we're essentially getting off the the subject. But the point is that there's another example of Don Ledger. You know, a man who was you know trying to get a book doing and it was just uh it turned out more or less a disaster on the other end now here we have frank Faschino, you know who went out and at, at that point i think he'd re- been researching it for at least 15 Has years done for research and i personally had my hands on frank's research because frank at one point sent it to us and we were not in the book packaging business anymore when frank sent it we we'd long been out of that business because we were so heavily into ufo magazine um so, but I saw Frank's organization, and I saw the depth of Frank's research. And yeah. you just tell in a minute, my goodness, this is a gold mine. This is perfection. This is what all publishers live for. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's all the all the the data in the right spots and 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 everything hanging straight and true. And it's just incredible. Uh, 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 amount of evidence, uh, uh, you know, putting this whole thing together and justifying it. But, you know, so, uh, uh, Frank, uh, and you mentioned rather naively, because, uh, I mean, what else are we going to do? You're supposed to be able to, you know, trust somebody, and uh, some people can talk a better uh, uh, game or scheme than others. But the point is, is the book was finally published, the galleys not approved by Frank, cutting and pasting to the tune of hundreds of errors in yeah. uh, in uh, uh, data placement and, and illustration identification and just lists chopped in half and put somewhere else in the book making no sense. And it was just a complete and utter, well, I mean, it, uh, it very nearly hull-breached Frank, hugely yeah. embarrassed yeah. Uh, Stanton Friedman, who knew the real story and and seen how the story was supposed to have been published, right? Now this remember, was not a this was not a Vanity Press. This was an actual yeah. This publisher. is a book publisher. This yeah. is a book publisher because I, Vanity yeah. Press has a bad. It used to have a bad connotation, but now it means sometimes you can shepherd your own book all the way there. Sometimes well, you true know, enough. True enough. And Frank, case in point, has been able to do that and and published the story exactly as he wanted it to be portrayed, meaning every, all the information there, you know, why he was thinking and, you know, what, what was leading him along and that next, next bit of evidence that he was following and stuff. And uh, so there he was, though. He, you know, got uh, uh, just a reputation nearly, nearly destroyed. You know, has been a long time fighting back. And the smolder never went out, of course, because uh, – he can't be discounted. He can't be attacked on the facts. He's got all the facts right there in his hand. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, it is written. It is portrayed. It is on film. It is, you know, I mean, he's got all the facts there. So well, let's, let just, folks, let's let folks hear Frank's voice. Hi, Frank. Oh, is is, is Hi, Frank glad there? Glad to be back here again, guys. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he's been here the whole time. Oh. Listening Good thing you didn't say anything bad about him. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> How's everybody doing today? Good, Frank. How are you? Why is your voice so deep? 
Allergy real. times in Florida. <laughs> I thought you were trying out for Star Wars Episode Eight when they bring back yeah, right. Darth Vader. That's what I was <laughs> Well, that the means the fact that Frank is a manly man, and we just finished. True that. Uh, yeah, and the thing, Frank, Frank told me earlier that you and uh, Frank and Alfred have right now a uh, a brand new, amazing find. Uh, if if we we, I guess we should lay out quickly the Braxton County monster, so that people will know how amazing the new find is. So I let's, guess. Oh, let's do that, Frank. Take it away. Well, the biggest misconception about the Flatwoods monster, it wasn't a monster at all, uh, Bill and Nancy. It was actually some type of a mechanical apparatus. It was a hovering device. And right. what happened is it was correctly reported by the original uh, reporter, Ailey Stewart Jr. from the Braxton Democrat, who was working with the Charleston papers. Okay, Flatwoods is... You know, just about an hour's drive away. So anyways, what happened is Stuart was reporting because he was the Johnny on the spot. He's the one that broke the story to the press. And when the media reported it, it was reported correctly. Well, about five days like later. Right. About five days later, what happened is Mrs. May... Ailey Stewart and one of the other primary witnesses, Gene Lemon, an adult, they were contacted by a television show in New York, and it was hosted by Daniel Seymour, and it was the show of the day. It was called We the People. It was kind of compare it to uh, can, like the can Oprah Can we stop Winfrey right show. there real quick? Yeah, we, sure, the, the, we the people. We the people. Uh, that was the most popular television program in the area at the time and i was going to ask bill if bill did you have any history on that on uh, on uh, the the uh, host and uh, the show i never even heard of it you? i've never no, even heard I rem- of it i remember the show it was it, it was um, it was one of the very very first early 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 shows purportedly telling the truth about things you wouldn't hear in the news. It was really kind of a very populous um, show, but I didn't know the host, and I rarely watched the show. It started out as a radio show first, Bill, and then it it went to television, then they both ran together. Well, what happened is um, the story was picked up uh, by the United Press, and the New York Daily News carried the story, so... Uh, automatically shot around New York like wildfire, and it became a big hot story. And the We the People show caught wind of this Flatwoods monster story, and they contacted Mrs. May in Flatwoods and uh, Stewart, the reporter. And he was kind of taking care of the whole thing in Flatwoods. You know, the correspondence between the press, the media, television, radio. So what happened is five days after the initial articles that Stewart had worked on with the Charleston papers, giving the correct portrayal of the monster as being a mechanical, looked like it was wearing a suit of armor, which it was, uh, a big mechanical device, the crew from Flatwoods went to New York. They were flown into New York, and they appeared on this television show that Daniel Seymour was the host of. And they sat down before the TV show, Mrs. May, the primary witness, and Gene Lemon, the other primary witness who saw this monster from close up. They gave their descriptions to a sketch artist. 
and he had this big illustration board. It was about two by three feet. And he sat down, they gave the descriptions. He drew this picture and a pencil and basically handed it off. They put it up in front of one of the cameras. They were briefing the witnesses and Stewart, the reporter, and the show went live. There was an orchestra pit playing scary music. The MC mm. came on. He gave his lowdown of the story. And mm. what they did is they flashed the drawing to the mm. American public. This was a nationwide mm. show. And it was the incorrect drawing. It mm. didn't look close to what it actually was supposed to resemble. Well, was, was it, did they switch drawings? Was this the drawing no. that they... No, no, they no, just no, mis- no, that- the, the artist misinterpreted what the witnesses were telling. Well, did them. but but did Mrs. May and uh, Lemon did they did they see this drawing before the show? Well, they were sitting there while the guy was drawing it, and they just whisked it away and popped it up in front of the screen, and this was it. It resembled it very uh, mm. limited, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, at that point. It's it's going live, and they gave their um, their lowdown on the story. They described what happened, and Stewart told mm-hmm. me in an interview after they went through and talked to the witnesses. Then they came to him. He summarized the whole thing, and he kind of wrapped the story up. Right. So what happened is the people in Flatwoods who saw this thing and the people that I interviewed and talked with told me it didn't look like that. When I said years ago, when I started right. working on this project, it says Frank, it didn't look like that. The artist misinterpreted, you know what what they they told what them. they were describing. So, yeah. Well, do you think the government had already gotten control of the story by this point, and they had basically set it up so that a silly looking thing would be what went out over the airwaves? I I don't know, Nancy. Boy, Nancy, I, Nancy is sure one for cutting to the chase, though, isn't she? Yeah, <laughs> it could be. I, well, you know, that's another way to look at it. I think they just misinterpreted it because Mrs. May is true. Now, you have to figure 1952, Central West Virginia, Braxton County had a couple cars and the whole area. One was a police car, <laughs> you know, very backwards. Right. Right, and you got to remember too. You know, remember too that that back when this 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 uh, story initially came out, it was we the people who got interested from things that they were hearing, giving true descriptions as a yeah. mechanical thing. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like a, like a drone or a probe. Yeah, so it didn't need to look like Darth Vader in a in a sweet sixteen suit, you know, wearing, uh, you know, uh, waving waving his arms and hands and big claws and what's and, and whatnot. Well, well, what would it look cool? Well, was it we the people that um, got Ivan T. Sanderson interested in the story in the first place? Frank. Uh... He was up there about a week later. I don't know for sure, Bill, but it's a good possibility. Yeah. Because, um, actually, let me play it back in my memory banks. Uh, no. I have to, I'm going back in my memory, Bill. Actually, what had happened, Sanderson came into Flatwoods to interview the witnesses. Uh-huh. And he didn't know they were in New York, so... 
that show did not tip him off. Okay, good. But that was the big thing. When, when Sanderson got there with his monkey on it that he carried around on his shoulder, he was kind of, you know, ticked off because he was unaware that they were gone. So what an only... incredible display of minutia, Frank, about this story. What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, meaning meaning that like every there's every little period is where it's supposed to be. Every little cross T, uh, all the information is just right there, scaring you in the face. And uh, yet, it's the the story continues to smolder. But you know what's weird? Um, the same way that the original story, when it hit the media, got distorted. Every time that Frank has worked with the media, it's gotten distorted, as you can clearly see. You know, by hook oh, or by Oh, very cut. much so. Very much you know? so. I, Even Bill, Bill got distorted there for a second. Whoa. I, yeah. Bill, I think, uh, you know, you could agree that there's been a lot of distortion to Frank's story. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course there has, because people, um, first of all, that whole period, even though everything about this period was covered in the media, I think one of the points that Frank makes, made in both books, is that this was not some hidden story. This was picked up by the media, distorted by the media, but but covered by the media. And then the story surrounding the Braxton County monster, which was the invasion of flying saucers over Washington, D.C. in 1952, and the orders to shoot those flying saucers down, that became so distorted, mainly because it was a reality that nobody wanted to face. And so the 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 spin on that story um, has just floated through over the years and just clouded the whole thing. And the Braxton County monster story got got spun into that story as well. So the the kernel of truth is there. It's actually there in Frank's books, but the kernel of truth is there. But even today, people are just not sure what the whole story was. Yeah, you don't have to search for the for the truth. You only have to have to face it. That's true. I mean, when you think of all the people who were involved, and there's a whole bunch of people, real human beings, um, who were involved in that entire story over that summer going into September. So thank you. Right. Yes. With, you know, with just, I mean, Edwin Ruppelt and um, uh, uh, um, even Roger Ramey was involved in that. And, and um, Kehoe was right in the mix of it, too. Al Chop. Al Chop, Kehoe, uh, uh, Marion Magruder, who basically was at the Pentagon that night. Um, Army colonels and Army generals and Air I mean, it was astounding how many people, even Harry Truman, President Truman, had his own kind of um, come-to-Jesus moment. Does he go before the public as he went before the public in 1950? Because remember, in 1950, Harry Truman said, these are flying saucers, we know what they are, and that was a public statement. So that was presidential disclosure right then and there. There was your disclosure right there. Right, but would Harry Truman come forward again? No, he left it to his Air Force general, the head of intelligence, who basically, according to Donald Kehoe, also had a crisis of conscience and basically lied and concocted a whole other story that Edward Ruppelt, now out of the Air Force years later, debunked. But I've always thought that what Frank has uncovered is almost a time before the lies, because Frank's 
research is almost pre- almost predominantly what 51 52 53 during that period when meteors were coming down like crazy right or right, exactly. we were being attacked and you were getting by going to the newspapers you're getting some firsthand stuff before there was a government cover up it's it's you're, you're going right to the source you 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 interviewed all the original people that actually experienced this summer of the saucers right and so the Not about videotape. Exactly. But right. I wonder how yeah. tense how tense things were during that time. Were people on like on like was it a tinderbox of nerves? Oh absolutely. You know, the the UFO flying saucer stuff was there was in the papers almost every day. It's just not right. talked about that much. And and it's a very tiny amount that even reached Project Blue Book, right, Bill? You know, oh, with, that's with true. The Project Blue Book is a fraction. Right. Look at the the Flatwoods case, all the the hundreds of sightings that there were up and down the East Coast that day, and there's only a handful of them in Blue Book. But the thing about it is, Bill, is the stuff that was in Blue Book to do with the September 12th um, incidents was gold because nobody had ever looked at it and pieced it together. Right, exactly. And, of course, and when it, you did... Basically, use the Air Force's own information. And uh, I talked about this with Alfred and Stanton Freeman years ago. I probably know more of what happened that night than the Air Force did because I don't think they spent 20 something years <laughs> like I did trying to piece this together. Well, you interviewed the live witnesses more than uh, more than the Army certainly did, more than the Air Force did. You spent right. more time with the witnesses on the ground in the area. You spoke to the people who first saw that thing. That's correct. Right. And lived, how did, lived with them to a degree. That's true. Now, how did they describe it to you? Because this is important because you are never going to get the actual firsthand witness descriptions except right here from Frank. What did they say to you? Well, the first thing they were disappointed in back then, Bill, is the way that the, the press handled the whole thing. And that's why they basically shut down, uh, because they were just made fools out of, you know, like Alfred said earlier, the Sweet 16 monster wearing a dress and, you know, with the waving claws and the arms and all that. That was just ridiculous. And um, I'll tell you I'm something, Bill. For- yeah, the first time I met Stan Friedman was in Gulf Breeze years ago. Mm-hmm. And I walked up to Stanton and started talking to him about the case. First time I ever met the man. And he looked at me and I remember him saying, how the heck did you ever get into those mountains to interview oh. those people? <laughs> he said, we've been trying to get in there for years. And I said, who's we? He said the UFO community, and they just shut down, and they won't talk to us. Wow. And I told them I had family and relatives up there who helped me. And basically, I was an outsider. It, it actually took me a while before, you know, I won their trust over. But yeah, Mrs. but you May weren't in a rush. Person. Yeah, right. you didn't come in like a Hollywood kind of guy, you know, let's see what I can do with you folks in, in two and a half weeks, you know? Right, right. And, you know, the people that were slamming doors in my face and telling me to screw and get out of town, we don't want to see anymore. Uh, you know, that was aggravating. But what and, happened and did, is, that actually happened? Oh, yeah. They didn't want to talk to me. I was an outsider. <laughs> it's well. still like that up there, and it's never going to change. People who were born and raised there moved away to college, 
and come back a few years later are still considered outsiders. (laughs) And they were born and raised there, and their families have lived there for 150 years. So here I am coming in. They don't know me from Adam talking about the monster. Well, did I was shown uh, guns, Nancy, and oh. uh, and saw it. Say we don't talk about this goddamn monster no around here no more. Boy, oh. and flashing guns! Oh my oh. god, this isn't cool. You know oh, something is really going on here. It was kind of yeah, like but, the Stepford Wives. It was weird. And, and today, if someone were to go there, uh, don't they sort of embrace it nowadays? They have a statue and stuff. Conference? Yeah, uh, pretty much. So they're. They kind of took the whole story in, but um, the old timers don't like talking about it because the ones who lived through it and they're dying off left and right. You have a new generation of, of uh, kids growing up who are into the monster story, and but like what Alfred and Bill were talking about earlier, I still don't think the majority of the people got it in their head what actually happened. I Google image stuff and hit Bing. And I look up the monster, and it's amazing all these stupid, ridiculous drawings that they're coming out with. There's thousands of them. They're making these stupid-looking toys of them, and they're still the monster in the dress with the arms and the claws. And And they still won't accept the reality of what it really was. Right, and you did a couple of really beautiful ones that we produced. One's on the cover of one of UFO magazines. That's one of my favorite covers. And it it's perhaps what the creature inside the thing looked like. Right. It was yeah, like a I spoke to George Zapowski and his wife who saw the reptilian monster the next night. Yeah. As far as I know, I'm the only person who talked to the Zapowskis uh, since 1955 when they were interviewed. Wow. Now, um, what was it? Now, uh, one of the fascinating things is that every time you bring up the story about it, people always talk about, well, you know the story is real because Sanderson had picked up on it. And so when you look at that particular period, that summer and that September, (laughs) there were so many stories floating around because, I mean, I remember it too. There was this confluence of a couple of things. One, there were the real stories that were in the movie Tone News because these are the ones showing the UFOs over the Washington Monument, because there was video of that. And then there was the story of UFO crashes, and then there was this story. And, but at the same time, there were all these flying saucer movies in the early 1950s as well, and it's almost as though if, if, if these stories didn't exist as facts, the CIA would have had to have made them up in order to have gotten its own version of the truth out there. And that's why there was so much marginalization of some of these stories, because every time you began talking about it, somebody would say, oh, it's like the invaders of Mars. Oh, it's like this island Earth. Right. Yeah, you know, it's recently been uh, criticized, uh, very recently, as a matter of fact. I think it was Nick Redfern who did a piece on it being, uh, more or less cut to the chase, an obvious psyop. It was. The CIA admitted it was a PSYOP. In their own history of UFOs, they talk about the fact that they had operatives going to Hollywood, working with various Hollywood motion picture companies for the express purpose of doing these science fiction movies to marginalize the whole story. Since they couldn't hide the truth, they might as well fictionalize the truth. No, I'm saying the Flatwoods monster as a PSYOP. 
Oh, oh, okay. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's the recent criticism is is that, uh, and, I, and I believe it was Nick Nick Redfern. I can't be entirely held to that. Yeah, that's right. But, but uh, wrote a, a piece here recently about it being an obvious psyop, and I was wondering what your opinion on that would be. Well, where does the obvious come from? Well, Say. just the things like that were going on at the time by admission of the CIA, as, as uh, Bill just pointed out. And, yeah, but, uh, but, but the way that Frank lays it out, um, f- uh, the uh, Braxton County Flatwoods, that was part of a whole crash sequence. Oh, exactly. Yeah, 100%. So it's not an isolated uh, PSYOP. It w- why would you stick a PSYOP right in the middle of a crash debris field? You know, you're just being kind of obvious with, you know, your PSYOP. The if biggest UFO flap over the United States when there was, what was it, Frank? A UFO, UFO in the sky every hour for, for 21 hours and change? Yeah, 21 plus hours. Just the East Coast? 12. Just the East Coast? Right. Up right. and down this the East is... Coast. Actually, there were sightings in... Uh, California? Illinois. And there was also sightings earlier on in California. And there were sightings, of course, um, on the other side of the Atlantic as well, in the UK. There's the sighting... Uh, there's the story of Milton Torres, who basically had an encounter with a UFO out of uh, either Woodbridge or Lake and Heath... Um, Ariaf Woodbridge or Ariaf Lakenheath. Yeah, but that wasn't the 12th, though, was it, Bill? September 12th? No, that wasn't. No, that wasn't the 12th. No, that wasn't the 12th. That's what I'm talking about. That's what's weird about that 24-hour period is that there was a UFO in the sky virtually somewhere all the time. Well, what do you think Hang on, Nancy. Hang on, Nancy. The the military had had uh, orders to shoot UFOs down. And, boy, A plus B, you got to come up with C, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was going to ask. What do you think was going on there? All the newspaper reports say meteors. Um, and oh, tell them, in, wait, hang on, Nancy. Frank, tell, tell them about meteors. There were, I searched every place on Earth for reports on meteors and meteor sightings. It's Smithsonian Institute, everybody across the board, and there were no meteors sighted that night in the, the astronomical records. Waiter. <laughs> Nothing whatsoever. <laughs> the only report of a meteor is in Project Blue Book. Hmm. And it was said to have had a duration of five, five about five well, seconds. Well, what were most people... Yeah, what five were or most six people, seconds spread out over 21 hours. Just wanted to make that point. What were most people reporting? Were they reporting uh, flying saucers or things crashing to the ground or a combination? All, all of the above. Hmm. There's 116 locations in 10 eastern states, and that's what I figured out the flight path trajectories. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is me 30 seconds. There were 38 locations in West Virginia, 18 North Carolina, 12 in Ohio, 9 in Maryland, 8 in D.C., 8 in Virginia, 7 locations in Tennessee, 13 in Pennsylvania, and one location in Delaware, and a most recent one that I came across, there was two locations in South Carolina, which mm-hmm. add up to 116 locations, and they were all different objects, different times, different flight paths, and there were four damaged UFOs. Uh, there were these four different objects. One accounted for two crash landings. One went down five times. They were puddle jumping, Nancy. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. One crashed twice. Uh, one crashed four. 
times and I have the locations pinpointed of every location, but I don't want to get into that. <laughs> well, I have did a whole the military in the back of my book that shows all the locations. Okay, and did the military in all cases swoop down and pick up bits? Clear Colonel the Levitt areas? was up there that night. Yeah, mm-hmm. and 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 it uh it was I understand now that it was a heavy battalion of infantry that he brought up there, and they were loaded for bear with boats and bazookas. And that's, uh, there, there's no stretches, stretches there at all. The boats were for, and, and Frank would flesh, flesh this out uh, more than I can, but the, there was a, a body of water nearby that somebody had thought a plane, big quotes around it, had gone down in. Wow. And right, they, uh, they, they had were... to cross the Elk River to get to the mountain on the other side. Yeah. And Levitt had, uh, had the troops, 180 troops, and they went down to the first crash area. He set the troops up. They were told it was a Piper Cub. Well, they never found anything there. They were looking survivors. What was happening, Nancy, is these craft were going down and crashing and puddle jumping and taking them off. When they came in, damaged over the United States and went down, then they were puddle jumping and flying, landing different locations. That's why it, it took over 20 years to figure this whole case out. Wow, yeah. Well, why were they crashing? When I, when I got into the little regional areas of, of these towns. Hold that thought, Bill. In Braxton mm-hmm. County, I went and I pulled out the, the microfilms and some of the original papers and I found out what was going on in Frametown, Flatwood, Sutton, all these little towns that you're not going to read all about all of these sightings in the New York Daily News. So then I had more maps for the regional areas and then just connected this big mess together. <laughs> and uh, that's why it took over 20 years to put this whole thing, which nobody else had ever done. And like mm-hmm. Alfred and Stanton have said before, they don't even think the Air Force, and I agree, I don't think the Air Force even knew what was going on. Because I don't think they researched or went to the archives like I did. Bill? Yeah, no, my question was, uh, what was causing all these crashes? What why were they crashing? Go down? Yeah, why were yeah. they crashing, Frank? Uh, well, in my opinion, and the opinion of most is they were shot down. Because what happened, Bill, is when I retraced the flight paths off the eastern seaboard, they all intersected 90 miles off the coast uh, of the, uh, over the ADIZ zone, Air Defense Identification Zone. And that's where they all came and was in flames, was over the eastern coast. Another object came in from the south, from the direction of Florida, and that flew up. And that was accounted for one of the new sightings in uh, North Carolina. A uh, gigantic meteor was said to have went down on a farm and it crashed. And when they went to the area, it was gone. That object proceeded north and flew in the flatwoods. So these objects were heavily damaged. They were exploding, having pieces falling off of them. Some of them, Bill, were actually disintegrating and reappearing down the road a little bit like they were going through time travel they would see it and it would explode and it would disappear in a shower of uh, sparks and then they see it a mile down the road geez ufos in the air plus orders to shoot those ufos down 
I mean, it doesn't seem like rocket science why well, they're no, crashing. No, no. It, it doesn't, but, but you have to ask how were our – I know you explained this once before, Frank. Maybe you could explain it again. How were our fighter jets, how were our interceptors able to shoot these craft down? I was about to ask that because seriously, I mean, th these are supposed to be alien, you know, from who knows where, millions of years more advanced, maybe thousands. How the heck do we shoot them down? Okay, when uh, 10 pounds of high explosive uh, reaches you at the speed of sound, it's going to complicate your physics at the very least. And that's what was being fired at these things. Maybe they didn't have countermeasures at, at, at this point. We really can't hardly speculate on what they were and what they were doing at that time. Perhaps they, they were things that, that uh, could be shot down. Perhaps they were purposely shot down. To, uh, I don't know. I mean, who can know? Who can speculate on the, the mores and capabilities of aliens? You know, I mean, well, they're aliens, you, for my, God's sake. Yeah, but or, or they might have been our own black budget advanced stuff. Uh-huh. Yep. Maybe. Yeah, but where's, I, the, where, where's the evidence for that beyond? Where's the evidence that they're aliens? Well, I the, well, they they I were in the sky for twenty four hours. No, I think I think they're aliens. I completely won that argument. Completely won that one. You got okay, it, Doctor Nichols. Okay, thank you. Thank you. No, no, no I don't think they'll well, be. To answer Bill's question, what we started before we got off track. Yeah, go ahead. Back in nineteen fifty two, and I didn't realize this either. I work with a lot of Air Force guys and retired mm -hmm. Marines, Army, Navy guys, and pilots, and I had no idea until I spent probably about six years at Embry Riddle driving the professors nuts over there. The United States in 1952 had three rocket bearing jets. And I had no idea at that point, these were computerized jets. They all had, uh, armaments. They carried the 2.5 inch pardon. They had radar directed weapons, right? Exactly. And they were carrying these 2.75-inch Mighty Mouse rockets with 7.5-pound warheads on them. Mm -hmm. And the, they had an effective range of 3.5 miles. And basically what it was in layman's terms is the computer of the aircraft would lock onto the target. And the pilot could basically just take his hands off the steering stick. And the jet would actually target and fly at the object, and the computer would pick the precise moment to fire the rockets, and the pilots just sat there to monitor everything. And I had no idea back then we had that technology, and that was a little bit more advanced than the bullets at that time. It, it, and we had the, F, the F-86D, the Starfire F-94C, and the Navy right. had the Cutlass. Right. Right. Now, here is something else. So a little piece of history to add to Frank's piece. Um, in 1950, actually it was before 19, it was early 1952, late 51, 52. That computer-directed, radar-directed firing mechanism that Frank is talking about. The United, we were at, at this time, remember, we were fighting the Korean War. And the United States was holding its own barely in the air war over Korea. The, uh, the, uh, the Russian MiGs were outflying our Starfires and our Cutlass jets. They were outflying us. The Bs, the B models, Starfires, because the Air Force 
and the government never allowed the seas to fly into into Korea during the war because they were scared if they went down, the Soviets would get our technology. Right, but the one plane that we did have flying over Korea was the Sabre Jet. Right. And, right, and... Uh, that was very dominant. As soon as we began using that radar-directed firepower, the whole air war turned over in our favor, and we began shooting down MiGs. Now, the MiGs could still outfly us, but they wouldn't dare engage us because uh, the kill ratio suddenly went up over Korea. And here's the, a little piece of history. Because the F-86 Sabrejet was so effective with its radar firing mechanism that the Soviets would order the Chinese and the North Koreans to bring down a saber jet so they could capture the pilot and hold the pilot during the war and basically kept the pilot in the Soviet Union after the war, mainly to learn about how that firing mechanism worked. That's how effective that was. So right at the summer of 1952, this was Right after the air war had peaked, Truman is still president. Eisenhower will take office the following year. But that ties in with this whole history of um, Soviet spies coming back into the United States in the early 1950s, in 52 and 53, using the identities of the pilots that had been shot down that were soldiers who would never come back alive. In fact, some of them might still be alive in their 90s in Korea today or in the Soviet Union today in some gulag somewhere because that person's identity was taken over. Mm -hmm. And that, and Alfred, this will kind of tickle your interest, that whole program, that piece of technology which resulted in the capture of so many U.S. pilots and the um, detention of those pilots and the coming back into the United States, remember the, how Don Draper came back into the U.S., how Richard Whitman came in in Mad Men. He took the identity of somebody else who had died. Well, th- that actually stimulated the CIA knowing that we had people left behind and there were identities and Soviet spies, conditioned Soviet spies were back in the United States was one of the reasons that propelled the CIA to engage in MKUltra to find ways to penetrate that conditioning. They did this up in Canada at McGill and the University of Montreal to, to penetrate that condition. So that is really a piece of American history. So when Eisenhower comes into office in 1953, he's confronted with this. He's confronted with the story of Roswell. And that's part of the reason Eisenhower, again, this is more lore than truth, but that's part of the reason had Eisenhower or were Eisenhower to have met with aliens, uh, the whole Muroc story at Edwards Air Force Base, that would have been one of the reasons. Because mm, after, the 19, wait. after that wait. 1952, after that 1952 invasion, suddenly the appearance of flying saucers dropped off considerably. We need to take a break. I needed to find a way in, so we need to take a quick break, and we'll be right okay. back. So do us a break. 
Okay, so um, Alfred and Frank are staying Do with us. Do us a break. <laughs> Alfred Boy, and Bill, Frank that was interesting. I learned something tonight. <laughs> okay, well, stay with us. We'll all talk more. I, I want to talk more about this flying saucer invasion of the Braxton County Monster. So we are Bill and Nancy Burns with our guests, Alfred Lemberg and Frank Fischiel, and our producer, The Jackal. And we are back yes. after these messages Indeed. on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. PSN Radio. There we go. Hello, my name is Howard Hughes, and I'm in London, and I've been proud to bear this name all my life. Over here in the UK, I'm known as a broadcast journalist. I've been involved in some of the big stories of our time. The fall of the Berlin Wall, the death of Princess Diana, I told London about that. And on the first and second anniversaries of 9-11, I was there at Ground Zero, speaking to the people who were directly involved and those experiences I will never forget. So news is my thing. But my great love is my show, the one that I produce, The Unexplained. Over the years on this show, I've spoken to people like the late Al Bielik from the Philadelphia Experiment, Edgar Mitchell, the amazing Apollo astronaut, Dr. Stephen Greer, David Icke, and Uri Geller. People like Richard C. Hoagland have become personal friends over the years. I met him in London. So you can see that these sort of topics are what I like to discuss. Please join me on my show from London, The Unexplained, Monday nights on the Dark Matter Network. Roswell. UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction, are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. back on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio with our guests Alfred Lemberg and Frank Faschino, and we are talking about, well, the larger issue, the 1952 Summer of the Saucers, but specifically the orders to shoot the flying saucers down and this one crash in the mountains in Braxton County, Virginia, the Flatwoods Monster, and how that story still today resonates in the area and it's still it's still not a story people that has fully made its way into the mainstream consciousness in uh the history of ufos in the united states so and, take and, it away and still a smoldering story that uh is a smoldering worldwide to this day that's right that's exactly yeah, but right. i blame i blame myself i blame all of us i still think everybody ought to be buzzing about this story a lot more Okay, so I I, I, I would be happy. That's one of the reasons why it's not. 
There's just mean? too much stuff there. If if you the, the deeper you go, the truer it looks. And I'll tell you what, falling down a rabbit hole can get scary. Yeah. I yeah. think it's okay. You know, I think my intuition is it's good for us in the long run. I say embrace it, you know, throw out your arms. But on the other hand, the silly looking drawing, in fact, uh, wasn't able to contain the story. It wasn't able to make the laughs go away. People are still interested and they're still lifting up the rock. So well, even though, you know, Frank, it might Frank's be the reason for that. Disguise. Yes. I mean, Frank's yeah. the reason for that, period. Well, I mean, now period. you've got, so you've got, and you guys have some news on that very topic. Tell us the news. Yeah, well, it's weird. It's, it's a weird story. Go ahead, Frank. Well, the original drawing was lost in the shuffle. What happened is when Kathleen May went on the national television show and this drawing, the incorrect drawing, was shown to the public. After the show, Mrs. May was given this drawing, and she brought it back on the plane with her to Charleston. When she landed in Charleston, the press was there waiting for her. When she mm -hmm. caught the Greyhound bus from the terminal back into Braxton County, there was a lot of pictures taken there. Okay, Some of those pictures are what you see with Mrs. May and witness Jean Lemon standing there holding that the drawing. When right. they got back into Flatwoods, Ailey Stewart took more photographs. These are all the ones that you see on the Internet. They were taken in Charleston, and they were taken in Flatwoods. Well, that photograph was thought to be lost. I mean, the, the drawing back over 60 years ago. Well, just recently, a couple months ago, someone came forward and went to the Braxton County Convention uh, Bureau and they had the drawing. They had kept it behind locked wow. doors for over 60 years. Hmm. And it has never been seen. And the true, it was actually photographed with a color camera. It was never seen in color. Even though hmm. it was a black and white when I first saw it, I was shocked because it was actually highlights. Uh, what would you call it? An aura? Alfred, what was drawn around the head to signify by the artist light and the, that there was it, light that it was glowing eyes. right that it was glowing so the artist did get that right well anyway well, we have this historical drawing that. that was thought to be lost for over 60 years and it's still around the people who came forward did not want to be known they remained, remained anonymous because mm -hmm. because and according to what the the initial little release story was they didn't want to be hounded because the story's become so popular in the past few years. They they knew people were going to be bombarding them and making them offers and just hounding them to death. So is the is the is the is the, is the uh, drawing going to be published? It's it's on the internet right now. Alfred Lumberg just wrote a big uh, how many pages? Uh, Alfred, <laughs> he just <laughs> it wrote did a go huge on, article. It? it did go yeah. on and on. <laughs> But, just but it tells up, the whole story, the whole weird story that you're not going to get in this radio program. Oh, you might. You might. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's like this is the movie. You know, I'm talking about the book. Right. Okay. So, not to demean yeah, the radio no, program. No, no disrespect to future theater. Lord, <laughs> lordy. You. Anyway, do, you realize this has been, do you realize this is your fifth appearance on the show? So, um, what mine? 
No, the two of you, right. the two of you. This is not your fifth appearance, Alfred. Yours is like your 20th, but I put it all on okay. the uh, go to com and look at our tonight show, and it's there permanently. Um, but it's been, this is show number 265. We've been doing this for almost six years now. And I'm wow. just saying, I don't feel we're hit, getting the story. No, yeah, but I don't feel we're, I feel like we're not doing our job. Seems to get like the a story. lot longer. <laughs> yeah. and that could be taken two ways but, uh, no but it's true for for all the years that we've been talking about the story for its appearance in ufo magazine for uh for frank's two books obviously alfred for all the writing you've done about this story still it is mainly this sub rosa tale of something that might have happened in 1952 and nobody really gets to the bottom of it, even though Frank, I think, has gotten to the bottom of it and yeah. is the only person really, I, I keep getting back to this because it's so rare when this happens, one of the only persons ever to have interviewed the live, firsthand, on-the-spot initial witnesses who were at the very core of that story. You even, uh, didn't you even interview the Colonel, Frank? Yes, I interviewed Colonel Levitt, right. Which is an incredible, because this is a guy who has totally disappeared into history. What did he tell you? This, is, this to me is most important. What did Colonel Levitt tell you? Well, first and of all, Bill, uh, Colonel Levitt was introduced to me by Kathleen May. And this was earlier on in the early 1990s, uh, 1991, 92. I started working with Mrs. May, and she told me about Colonel Levitt. And Colonel Levitt was a war hero. He fought in the South Pacific. And he later on, he even became the sheriff of Braxton County. But well, anyways, I was kind of nervous about talking to this guy. He, you know, like I said before, I was the outsider. And uh, it was kind of nerving to talk to a big wig colonel and talk about the Flatwoods monster after, you know, being shunned off by all the locals. So Kathleen May made the initial phone call and she set it up and I actually went out and had breakfast with Colonel Levitt with my cousin and we went up to the Bailey Fisher farm. I took notes, took a couple photographs and as we started talking and let me throw in, he would not allow me to videotape him. So we started talking about this whole case, and he That's hit me with the point that he was up there not only for the crowd control and the, the subsequent days and weeks, because there was about 10,000 people estimated went to Flatwoods from around the United States or from around the world came in there. He said they were up there that night, and, and nobody knew that. And I didn't understand what he was talking about. Well, I'll make a long story short. I would say, well, how can you come up here with 50 to 60 troops and nobody knew that you were here? He came in on the north side of the farm through a logging access road. And he had pointed it out to me. We didn't walk all the way up, but he told mm -hmm. me he came in with trucks. They parked them down in the back road. And then they came up and they hiked up over the top. And that's when they found the area of the tree. And Levitt told me he saw the oil all over the place. And there was a big giant puddle from a leak because this mm -hmm. craft, which 
was the monster and some type of a spacesuit, I believe, was actually leaking oil all over the place. Did, Colonel, did Colonel Levitt take a sample of the fluid that had leaked out of that device? Yes, he did. And what he happened took, to it? He, took he was all specifically of it. ordered to, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was ordered to take the samples. He took samples of the leaves, the oil. He found some black stuff that looked like carbon. Um, everything that he could get his hands on. And he also found so, a piece of metal on a farm as well. And he told me he was ordered and he didn't, he said shifted it off. And it was sent back to Washington, D.C. because he received orders. He got a call in the middle of the night from the Air Force. The Pentagon had called him. And that's when the story started getting real interesting. And he told me this during the first interview. Mm-hmm. And I had no no proof of it. So I basically hounded Colonel Levitt to death. I was calling him up all the time. I was dropping him letters. I was just showing up, cold call, banging on his door. And it was either to the point, and I've said this a couple times before, Bill, he was either going to shoot me or talk to me because I was a pain in the ass with him real bad. And I said, I have to get this in the history books, Colonel Levitt. And then I, what basically sold Levitt and talking to me and spilling his guts, Bill, is I was man-to-man straightforward. I said, look at what they're saying about your people here, Colonel right. Levitt. And I was showing them the articles, how they were being laughed at. The right. hillbillies, they were drunk, smoking pot. I mean, all the crazy, ludicrous things they were saying. I said, if you don't talk to me, you are the most powerful man involved in this that I have met of authority who was called by Washington. If you do not talk to me and you die, the story is going to be lost forever. I said, and they're going to be remembered and Flatwoods is a bunch of assholes who saw some stupid monster in a dress. And so he strange. just looked at me. And I said a few more words to him. I don't even want to repeat, but that's basically what happened. And I left and I got a call. He says, get your goddamn camera. I'm ready to talk, kid. <laughs> and wow. I went back up there with a, I had a high eight camera at the mm-hmm. time. And I went up onto the farm with him, with my two cousins, who I learned to travel with other people who were armed as well. <laughs> and I interviewed Colonel Levitt, and I stood in front of him for about an hour. And he also told me a few war stories, too, when we got done with the interview. But he was a really nice guy, and uh, he just broke down and basically told me everything. Now, what's interesting, Bill, is when I interviewed Levitt, this was at the, the onset of when I started looking into this case. I had no idea it was going to go over 20 years. As I started I interviewing see. other people and pulling other information up, I had the copies on VHS. and That's I what I was going to ask you, right. I didn't know everything he was telling me because it didn't make sense. But then as I read something in Blue Book or I interviewed somebody else or another witness and I kept digging and digging and digging, I would pull that tape back out and go, holy shit, that's what he was talking about. That's what Colonel Levitt told me. And, Bill, you're talking 10, 15 years later. I didn't know what he was talking about. Now, did you – okay, now, you still have all that footage of Colonel Levitt, right? Yes. And – I have about – 
25 copies of it spread around the country. Okay, but you... I, I learned, yeah, they'll be the sole survivor in a take. No, 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 but I mean, you've got copies in your... Uh, you've got copies in your possession, too. Now, how much of what you... What Colonel Lever told you is also recorded on um, audio tape? Every, everything... Everything is on tape. Because what happened... Remember I told you I spoke to him earlier... Right. So I I knew a lot of what was going on already, so I knew what questions to right, ask. Right, and you transcribed everything, right? Yeah, I transcribed it into the book and on my on YouTube. If you just uh, type in "book by Fashino, you'll see right. part of the interview with him. Well, uh, did he, it, did he, he was did, pretty straightforward with me. Well, I just wondered if he or if you could sort of segue a little bit to the amount of flyers, soldiers we lost in that era. We lost, didn't you print a list of all the names of all the men who have had been lost? Important fighter pilots? Yeah, when you're I, in, well, what started the whole thing, <laughs> what started the whole thing is there was F-94B Starfire that disappeared right when all, everything hit in Flatwoods and all these sightings were going on. And, and what started, kind of plane, what kind of plane is that? It was an Air Force fighter. F-94B Starfire was based out of Tyndale Air Force Base. And I caught wind of that story. And to make a long story short, when I wrote my first book, when it came out in 2004, the the pilot and radar operator, it was Jones and Del Curto, both second lieutenants, they were never born. They never died. They were never in the United States Air Force. Wow. And I contacted and every organization you can imagine. And I just had a big circle toss around the country. I was wow. said, call here, call there, contact this. And what I did is I worked with a couple people and I tracked down their surviving brothers. And I spoke to the missing pilot's brother here in Florida. And he called me back about a week later after our first contact he went up into the attic, and he had the original Air Defense Command documents wow. from Tyndale Air Force Base and the Western Union Telegram letters from General Chidlaw at an Air Force Base in Colorado. And he gave me copies of it, and he actually gave me an original photograph of his kid brother. Well, and, and how did so you first So now I know hear... these guys existed. Right, how launched, did you first... launched into the teeth of UFOs. And wait, guys, disappeared wait. for it. But Frank, how did you first hear about their names again? Um, because they were erased. Where did you first come across their names again? Daytona miss- Beach newspaper. Oh, I was okay. in uh, the City Island Library, and I was, and there was actually the Daytona newspaper picked up an article about the the UFOs wow. that were seen over the Capitol and throughout the Northeast. And then mm-hmm. I just kept flipping through, and I just stumbled across it. And when I called. Um, Kirtland Air Force Base, um, I had, I was reamed. <laughs> you know about this boy, you know, you know, it was kind of weird. Uh, and, and actually, this is the honest of God's truth. When I started talking to the fella, he said, do you mean to tell me you have a newspaper from September 12th, 1952? And I said, of course not. I found it on microfilm. 
Mm-hmm. And then he went into the runaround. This could be very expensive to look into, blah, 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 blah. And I would, I contacted everyone. There's no social security death index for these guys either. And wow. it was actually in about 10 different newspapers throughout the state of Florida. And the story never reached outside of the state. Now, what's was, up with this stuff? What is up with this stuff? This is how, craziness. How did the, how did the air force account for these two pilots having gone missing? They didn't. I have a, typed letters from Kirtland, uh, Kirtland uh, Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama saying they have no record of these pilots or the incident or story that you requested information about. But after the book came out in 2004, Bill, uh, miraculously the documents were released and Stanton Friedman got hold of them for me and what I did is I had to compare all the stories. I have the copies from Chidlaw stating what happened upon the disappearance. You know, the, the, the whole story laid out. Then the story from Tyndall Air Force Base. There was a letter from the commander there. Then I had all the press release articles that went throughout the state of Florida from McDill Air Force Base and from Tyndall. And I combined all of that information together, and all the stories were different. They didn't make sense. And then the documents came out, 68 pages, and it was so convoluted, Bill. The Air Force has the jet disappearing at three different times. It was hmm. pandemonium. One hand didn't know what the other one was doing. So every story was different. The press releases, the Tyndall Air Force Base Commander's Letter, the Western Union telegrams, the 68 pages, it was deleted. Parts of it were deleted. Uh, actually, Stanton Friedman found a preliminary report at the National Archives. It was not in the microfilm. So this story was just ripped apart and chunked out. And that's just that's just one pilot. There were more pilots who were lost in yeah, the, during in that time span from, you know, through the mid-50s, there was hundreds mm-hmm. of guys that just disappeared, vanished, crashed. Yeah, it, it's crazy, Nancy. And right. what did and the older brother ever find out about his younger brother then? Nothing. The Air Force never told them nothing, Bill. And he didn't realize what was going on. And he was actually crying to me on the phone, Bill. Because I was calling them up and I would say, did you realize this, this and that and this and that? And they, the Air Force didn't contact you for days and your brother was missing and presumed dead. And he actually got upset with me and he says, Frank, you're tearing open an an old wound. Hmm. He says, my sister and I are heartbroken over this and the crazy, stupid excuses the Air Force gave us. So they don't have a pension and a hero's... A hero's burial and all that, I guess. They were initially no. swept under the rug, Nancy. Yeah, they well. just swept it under the rug. Well, what I did is I asked a brother, I says, do you have some type of a memorial headstone? And I went to Ocala, and I found it. It was a million and one shot. I found the headstone <laughs> of the missing pilot. And it was oh. quite moving, and it was overgrown with weeds and crap and junk all over and but, I went back wow. into town, and I cleaned the whole thing up, and I put flags there, and I photographed it. And uh, that segment is actually in the, the little documentary that I did. 
So it was okay. just a oddly, very convoluted odd, Frank, story. Frank, hey, Frank, yes, I think sir. you're going to forget this, but oddly, the uh, his date of death is September 12th, not Correct. when the Air Force uh, uh, said he uh, was declared dead. Right. And now, wow. Frank, how, how can folks get that documentary? You can go on YouTube, Bill, and just put in Book by Ficino, and it'll pop up. It's about 37 minutes. That's great. And it has the footage of, of me at the at the cemetery in Ocala, and uh, Alfred helped me, and he made a couple contributions to it, and he has some writings within it. So it's it's a good piece. There's some of Colonel Levitt's interview in there, uh, some of Mrs. May, Freddie May, and... Uh, Getting back to the other thing, as far as the the original drawing, artic- the article was written by Alfred. And you could read that. Uh, where do you have that posted, Al? Do you have that on Alien View? Uh, well, it's and on, on the, my uh, website. Yeah, it's on the Paratopiary. It's uh, on your website. Well, on your website. Why don't I link it up? Why don't I link it up with Future Theater as well? Since, as far as I know, it appeared in UFO Magazine. I could put some stuff up, and also we have a phone call, I believe. Yeah, uh, I think you'll Angel actually Dallas. like. We do, Nancy. The, the one and only Lou is on the line. Lou, Lou Future Theater. I have, I have a, I have a very serious point to make, and then two other ones I'd like to make. Okay. Only Nick Redfern's dad. Nick Redfern's dad was in England, and there was Operation Mainbrace in September of 1952, where lots of UFOs were reported. And the Flatwood right. Monsters was in September of 1952. So maybe Mr. Fraschino might want to cross-check with this other mass sighting of UFOs in Europe. Again, Operation Mainbrace, and as I said, Nick Redfern's father was involved yep. in that. And those are the same months. He was a radar Um, operator. He was a radar operator, Nick Redfern's father. And the fascinating thing about it is that while this was happening in the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower was on board the Franklin, the aircraft carrier Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That was a part of Operation Main Brace, went up to the bridge saw a, a UFO coming out of the water, told the bridge crew to forget about it, and went down below decks. Also, the CIA's assistant director, director, a guy named Chadwell, put out a memo in December of 1952 called The British Activity in the Field of UFOs, mm-hmm. and it was, ju- it was released in the year 2001. So there might be, anyway, the point being, there might be some interesting overlap with what you've researched and what else is out there. And uh, Angel has promised me that he would get Nick Redford's dad on, unless, of course, Nancy and Bill beat Angel to it. The other two things are, Mr. Pacino, what what are you working on next, and and where are you going to show up for conferences? Is Nick's dad still still alive? He is still alive. He lives in England, um, and the question is whether or not he's going to go on Skype to talk about it. But I like to think Nick could orchestrate it. But Angel had first crack at it. Uh, well, so Angel we, has first crack. That's fine. But uh, I always got first crack. You always have first crack. I know. Always. But let's uh, let's find out from Nick. Let's see if we can get an eyewitness to Operation Mainbridge uh, talking about it right. firsthand. And the same thing. Like I said, it's the same time as a, as what Mr. Shino's written about. And what, what's the, the likelihood day. of Backlund? And so maybe something was shot down over Europe and landed in West Virginia? You know well, I mean? Who knows? 
That's what well, somebody what else's we, book. You can give me a cut of the royalties, and I'll be happy. Well, what uh, we know, what we know, is that Edward Ruppelt had been told by a number of scientists to expect a, a, a UFO, I'm going to use the word invasion, but you'd probably call it an incursion, to, use the U, to, to expect a UFO incursion over the United States because of all the activity, UFO activity over the Atlantic. So, uh-huh. and, and our opera, uh, the purpose of Operation Mainbrace, it was the first major NATO exercise, and the FDR was the first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. And, um, but wasn't but, that in the movie, you know, the movie, I want to call it The Final Countdown, where there's sort of um, time travel and Catherine that, Ross, I want to say. And Kirk Douglas. Is that the Philadelphia right? experiment? Or is that, is not, the, Roosevelt is also known to have had a UFO following it for quite it, some time. Like it tracking did. Well, well, the U, yeah, well, the UFO also appeared over the FDR when it was on naval maneuvers in Brazil, and the Brazilian president was on another ship, and he but noticed. But what's the, uh, yeah, yeah, what's the time travel, yeah, what's the time travel movie that we see over and over? Philadelphia Experiment. No, 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 this is, no, this was a TV Back to the Future. No. no, this was a TV movie starring Kirk Douglas and Martin Sheehan, and and, um, and Catherine Ross and Catherine as the Ross. mistress of the of the of Roosevelt. She was sort of, and they were all transported onto a nuclear submarine. No, it was a senator that she'd been a mistress. No, no, it was a senator. No, she was no mistress. She was no She was a mistress. The, the final show. countdown was what? that it. <laughs> The yeah, final, it was the final countdown. countdown. Yeah, it was the final That's countdown. That's what I said, the final countdown, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. uh, well, I, I, James Gutt tells us what he's working on next, and then when he's going to start showing up on at on the conferences. And thirdly, when he's going to check into the if there's any connection between main brace UFOs and his own his own work. So I'll hang up and I'll listen to his responses and let him respond and not not the other folks. Thanks. <laughs> okay, Bye. fine. So I've been shut up. So go ahead, hmm. Frank, and respond. Thank you, Lou. The one, as far as Operation Mainbrace, uh, it was within about a day of the Flatwoods incident, September 11th. And the one, the one, the person who actually talked to me about this in depth was Stanton Friedman. And you could ask this to Stanton next time you have him on, Bill. But I remember years ago Stanton saying to me, while Mainbrace was going on, take the point of view of the aliens looking from above, looking down on us and going, oh, no, what are these idiots doing again? They didn't know that they were maneuvers. They might have thought it was real. Then approximately a day later, everything happens with Flatwoods. So mm-hmm. there may be a tie-in because they were definitely watching us. Well, they were watching well, us within those few days while Mainbrace was going on. Well, the and whole- I remember... Oh, the whole point of Mainbrace, the whole point of that was it was a NATO exercise. It was the first major NATO naval exercise. The point was that Mainbrace was supposed to choke the Soviets from getting from the um, from from getting into the North Sea and thence into the Atlantic. That was the whole point of Mainbrace. It was it was to block the Soviet fleet, but in particular blocking Soviet submarines from getting into the Atlantic because tensions were very high in 1952 between the Warsaw Bloc and NATO, and that was the purpose of Operation Mainbrace. Well, was so, there anything nuclear about it? Yeah, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. 
Okay, well, that that kind of goes with the good, the, the kind of good alien thought that the good aliens have shown up in time to keep us from lighting our whole planet afire with matches, basically. You know, do you know that theory? Yes, I well, do. Well, given that they may have been, you know, entirely shot out of the sky, I think that their attitude yeah, then there's that. the ground was, you know, was very, <laughs> has been very nice indeed. True. Well, well, one of the things that came out of this whole Eisenhower alien interaction talking about this was Operation Open Skies, was the Open Skies Agreement. Um, one of the theories is that Eisenhower brokered this deal or they brokered this deal in which they can surveil us. We don't shoot them down anymore. They don't become so visible to us that the country goes bananas and we simply coexist. And Eisenhower took that agreement, this open skies agreement with, with the ETs. And that's what he brought to the Soviet union saying, look, you surveil us, we surveil you. And that was the, one of the first major areas of detente between the United States and the Soviet Union in order to avoid a misunderstanding leading to nuclear war. So for all intents and purposes, um, there was some good that came out of that. Well, I hope so. I, I would think so. Um, I hope so. So, Frank, where do you go from here? Yeah, Frank. Yeah, that's a good question. Basically, right now, as as far as all the witnesses and everybody from Flatwoodsville, most of them are all dead. And uh, the ones that are alive, I've spoke to most of them, but they're all dying off. Mm -hmm. Most of them are dying of cancer, too. And uh, mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy, but what's going on is people are still contacting me with new uh, new newspaper articles, new stories. Last year, I don't know if mm -hmm. we talked about this on our last show, Bill, I received a call from West Virginia from a man who lived down the street from Frametown where the George Statowski incident happened where he saw the reptilian and it approached his car. Mm -hmm. And when he was a kid, he told me that he saw the Flatwoods monster with still the upper portion of its spacesuit on and the wow. helmet was removed because what it basically was, Bill, it was a spacesuit. It was a helmet and upper torso and a lower torso. Right. The lower torso right. had the pipes and it was a propulsion system. Right. Well, this kid saw this thing. And what was really cool about it, Bill, is when he went to school and he was talking to all the witnesses, I mean, the, the people, and he says, I witnessed this and this is what it looked like. He was telling his family and they said, you're crazy. You didn't see that. Didn't you see what the picture looked like in the newspaper right. and on We the People? The, what you're describing is mechanical looking. Mm -hmm. It was wearing a dress and had arms and claws. So the guys okay, stopped so, talking about it. You know, if I could interrupt guys, with something here, uh, Nancy. Just two. We only have two minutes, so I want to quickly let everybody be able to get folks to your websites and stuff. So, Okay, so go ahead, Al. Go ahead, Al. Uh, I did yeah, uh, flatwoodsmonster.com. That's all you need to know about me. Okay. <laughs> but as far as this other story, Bill, uh, it just goes to show how much damage that drawing did. Because here's this guy calls me as an adult telling me the story he saw, and he just shut up. And then somebody gave him uh, my book as a Christmas present, and he was reading through the book, and he said, that's what I saw. 
Mm-hmm. And, and is actually, there a main website for that book, Frank? Because we got to go. Flatwoods uh, yeah, Monster. It's right on flatwoodsmonster.com. It's right on flatwoodsmonster.com. Okay, so we have to go. But, and, and, is, and, and wait, wait, is the book digital yet? Is it a Kindle yet and all that? That's no, a good question. Not. No. Maybe we could talk. Kiddie, you, you, okay, you guys purchase it on Amazon. Heartbreak. Uh, stay tuned for Art Bell, who's coming up right after this. And we are Bill and Nancy Burns on Future Theater Live with our guests Alfred Lemberg and Frank Fischino and our producer, the Jackal Angela Spino. That's me. Wishing yep. everybody a wonderful week, a wonderful autumn. And we'll be back next week on Future Theater with our guest Paul Smith. Good night, everybody, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>